0: One of our distinctives is gathering around the table and having food and enjoying fellowship. And for the last couple of years, we've been hindered in being able to do that. And so uh, we've had some people join in the last two years that think like, oh, we just kind of meet and then leave. No, we have a party like every excuse that we can possibly come up with. So uh, we are excited to be able to fellowship to, to, uh, together next week. Uh, and I want to encourage you, if Tom and Lisa have ministered to you uh, in in a specific way over the last many years, please write that down. Get that to them in a note uh, so they can take it with them as as they head off to Tucson. Uh, we would love to bless them in that way. So I know sometimes, like me, like, oh, I, I wish I, I I should do that. No, you should do it today. Do it today. I think it'll encourage them. All right, well, let's turn in our Bibles tomorrow. Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Now as we've discussed, it's very likely that the text of the gospel of Mark was, uh, many of the, the accounts were provided by the apostle Peter working with Mark, but the apostle Peter who heard the voice of Jesus and saw Jesus with his own eyes says that in the word of God the phrase he uses is, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Meaning that the apostle Peter who saw Jesus with his eyes and heard Jesus with his own ears believed that this, the inspired, inerrant, living word of God was more true than even his own memory. Meaning that as we watch the events of the crucifixion today, in some sense, we see more truly than even the people on the hill of Golgotha. Church, this is hallowed ground. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Mark chapter 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma saftani, my God, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait. And there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is God's word. Father, we pray for sight. We pray to hear your voice. Amen. You may be seated. At 11,990 feet... In the mountains of Colorado, there stands an unassuming sign denoting Loveland Pass. It's an unassuming sign that you might miss in the midst of a snowy landscape, but that place bears a unique distinction. If one drop of water falls or one snowdrift melts to the right of the sign, that drop of water will eventually make its way through the water cycle to the Atlantic Ocean. To the left of the sign, if a drop of water or snowdrift falls, it will find its way to the Pacific Ocean because Loveland Pass is on the continental divide of the United States. States. The Continental Divide means that, that there is a, an invisible line stretching from the top of the United States all the way south through mountain ranges and mountain passes. And, and scientists have found that on the Continental Divide, if, if a drop of water falls on this side goes to the Atlantic, this side goes to the Pacific, and yet it is invisible. You, you might pass over this divide and not really tell the difference. It might seem like people standing on either side of the sign are standing close together, but a drop of water falling on either side will have a vastly different destiny. Our passage today, in our passage today, the cross is a continental divide, an eternal divide. Divide. At the center of the text is Jesus Christ on the cross, and the, that, that text is then divided between cruel mockers leading up to the cross and reverence on the other side of the cross from the centurion and the women and the angels. Everything on one side leads to one place. Everything on the other side leads to a radically different place. If the gospel of Mark were a mountain range, this crucifixion of Jesus is the highest point in the gospel of Mark, the peak of the mountain. Now, Everything has been leading up to this. As soon as Jesus' identity is revealed, uh, as soon as he's seen as the Messiah in Mark chapter 8, Jesus immediately says, he immediately begins to teach clearly that he will be rejected and suffer and die and rise again. And it says, he, he said this plainly. And again, he says it in Mark chapter 9. And again, he says it in Mark chapter 10. He, he repeatedly teaches this, meaning that the, the cross of Jesus Christ casts a shadow across the entirety of the gospel of Mark, and it casts its shadow forward into the rest of the New Testament. The cross is this continental divide. In life and in Scripture and in our passage and in the Gospel of Mark. So the question is, how do people looking at the same event believe radically different things? How do they end up in radically different places? And where are we on this continental divide? Now, the, word, the, the phrasing of 1 Corinthians 2, which talks about the cross being foolishness to some, but glory and power to others, our first section is the foolishness of the cross. The foolishness of the cross. In in, in Jesus' day, the cross was a a brutal, shameful, horrific thing. It, It involved driving iron spikes through someone's wrists and feet, forcing them, leaving them hanging, and forcing them to push themselves up on their heel, which caused intense, excruciating pain, to draw a breath. And they did this repeatedly until they suffocated and died. It was public, it was demeaning, it was shameful, it was reserved for the most vile criminals. And additionally, the Jews considered someone hung on a cross to be uh, cursed, according to the teaching of the Old Testament, that anyone hanged on a tree is cursed. So, as the onlookers saw Jesus hanging on the cross, they saw foolishness, they saw shame. And their mockery reveals so much about what they believed. First, they believed Jesus is no king. The inscription against him read, the king of the Jews. Remember that the soldiers in our previous passage beat him and and hailed him mockingly as the king of the Jews, meaning this was meant to be a brutal irony. Here hangs the king, powerless, naked, exposed, ha, was the, the, the feeling of the day. And in our world today, great men, kings, rulers, politicians, in all of them, power is measured in how much they can take and how glorious their position, how many they force to bow or worship at their feet. Jesus appears to do the very opposite, giving away his power until there is nothing left. How can this be a king? Second, they say... Jesus cannot destroy or rebuild anything. They wagged their heads and saying, "Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in 3 days, save yourself." Now they misunderstood and misremembered what Jesus had taught. That, that they they Jesus was speaking of his body as the temple, but they thought he was speaking of the physical temple and what they're see, seeing is this powerless man on the cross and they think he can't do anything. He can't accomplish anything. He can't destroy anything. He can't hurt anyone. He's no threat. He can't rebuild anything. He can't even move. And in our world today, many see Jesus as impotent. He can't do anything. What can a dead man 2,000 years ago do? It seems strange. From, in a world that is so materialistic, so obsessed with what's right in front of us, the world sees Jesus as impotent as these people did. Third, they believe Jesus cannot save anyone. Verse 31, they mocked him saying he saved others. He can't save himself. Now, they couldn't deny that Jesus had helped people and healed people, which were verifiable facts, but they, they could undercut that, right? The chief priests, seeing all this healing and demon casting and exorcism and even raising of the dead, they said, well, 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 he can't be that great, He can't even save himself. And as they mock, we see various responses to Jesus. We see some, like the the Roman soldiers, just take the meager possessions of Jesus, and some today, in a similar way, just take what they can from Jesus, use Jesus as they can, maybe borrow a bit of Jesus' teaching, may try to mold Jesus into their own image as a culture warrior or, or social justice advocate, using him for their own purposes, We see mockery of Jesus and who he claims to be, and many today look on Jesus and especially look on followers of Jesus and his church as as a punchline, as disdainful. And then we see apathy to Jesus. People just pass by. They laugh and pass by, and many today treat Jesus with apathy. See the cross with apathy. Do you see any of this in yourself? Maybe even growing up in church or sitting in church, you're apathetic to Jesus or privately disdainful of Jesus. Or you think, well, maybe this is true, but he seems so impotent. He seems a hollow king. What can he do? That's what everything looks like on this side of the cross. Now, section two, the heart of the cross. We're going to focus in almost, we're going to stand, as it were, on the peak of the mountain And look at the heart of the cross and see what the Lord sees. Now the whole New Testament will unpack what this moment means for the people of God. But Mark gives us two glimpses at the heart of the cross here. Two glimpses. One is what Jesus experienced positively and one is what he experienced negatively. Meaning what he felt and what he did not feel. What he experienced and what he did not experience. The first is the darkness of wrath. Verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And repeatedly in the Old Testament, darkness is a picture of wrath. Now, Americans have a complicated relationship with the idea of wrath. Uh, if, if I've talked to people, um, w- one of the most common things that they struggle with is like, well, I like the God of love thing, but I don't believe in a God of wrath. I don't want to believe in a God of wrath. You know, a mean God who punishes people. Ugh. And yet, all Americans believe in wrath. Because everybody has seen the movie Taken. Probably, Right? Meaning that, that, that all almost all action movies are built off of this premise that somebody does something unspeakable and horrible, and therefore we get to watch two hours of an angry dude gun people down and kill like a hundred guys in wrath, right? And so Liam Neeson's daughter gets taken, and you're just like, oh man, here it comes. You don't even know. And you're like, you're losing count of how many dudes. Was that 12, 13, 50? I don't know. He just keeps punching and shooting until he gets to the end. And the whole time, what are we doing? Like, yeah, get him. Like, right? These guys are the worst. We don't care about their backstory. It's just like, he was there. He had a gun. He's out, right? This is every action movie in America. So Americans are like, oh, I don't believe in wrath. I I don't like a God of wrath. But then we're watching like, yeah, get him, right? Because, because, Everyone believes in justice and wrath. Right? Americans are very much more so, with each passing year, more publicly advocating about justice, whatever justice means to them. These people are wrong. They deserve our wrath. This person did this. They should be canceled. This person did this. They should never leave jail. You know, the, 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 the anger that we feel We feel because we see often a a true injustice and want wrath to come down on it. The problem is this. Every human heart believes in justice and wrath except for when it comes to themselves. Everybody's like, oh, man, this person, this person, this person. And the Scripture holds up, as we saw last week, a mirror. And the crosshairs are on us. And we all want to believe we're Liam Neeson when we're not. In the Old Testament, one of the most profound moments where darkness descends on the land is in the exodus, and the plagues, right? Darkness covers the land, and the last plague is marked by a particular darkness, and the angel of death comes, and, and the firstborn child of every Egyptian family dies. But here's the important note, that the only way those in Israel are saved are not because they're better than the Egyptians, Not because they don't have sin, not because they have no reason for the justice of God to come against. No, no, no. We see plenty of reasons for the justice of God to come against his people. The only distinction is that they sacrifice a perfect lamb and place its blood over their door and the the justice of God, the wrath of God, seeing that blood has been shed in a sense metaphorically, passes over them. There is no distinction. When justice comes down, it comes for every single human that is guilty of injustice. And that is all of us. And so what we see here is a second Passover. Whereas the the note is that when the sixth hour had come, And if you read the commentaries, this this, and the ninth hour, between the sixth and ninth hour, that is when the Passover lamb was sacrificed. And so, as the darkness covers the land, Jesus endures the justice and wrath of God as the lamb of God for his people. In Gethsemane, he speaks of a cup that must be drained and must be drunk. And the idea of the cup, even for Jesus in his humanity, is staggering. The text reveals that it nearly makes him faint as he considers it. And between these hours, Jesus endures the cup. He drinks the cup. He drains the cup. He falls as the Passover lamb and the justice of God falls on. darkness of wrath, and second, the pain of abandonment. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a voice, loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, who almost exclusively spoke of God as his father, now speaks of him simply as God and describes that he has been abandoned. On the cross, Jesus encounters God the Father only as a wrath bringer, as justice bringer not the Father's warm relationship, not God the Father's comforting and sustaining and helping presence that was with him every moment of his incarnation. Since before creation, the Father, Son, and Spirit existed in love and harmony and joy and every step of his ministry that was with Jesus and now on the cross that is ripped away. And it's not just distance. Jesus describes his experience as forsakenness, meaning that that at the same time he's enduring the positive justice of God, he is not experiencing the love of his Father. Look, when when my son Ford was born, he was born late preterm, and so... It was, we, we were so excited to have our first child in the world, but, but as soon as he was born, we could tell something was wrong. Uh, y- you and I don't think about breathing but, because we just breathe, but as we look at this little guy, I'm like, I'm not a medical expert, but I know the way he's breathing is not right. It was like he, he was struggling to get air in his lungs, and so he would like do that. And, and, and you could tell he is struggling. And so the doctor said, okay, he's, 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 he's okay for now, but this, this, really, this could be a problem. So they took him, and they placed him. And what was really almost comical, they, they, they placed this little tiny baby. He's late preterm, so he's a little guy, little tiny guy. And they placed a bubble over him, which I thought, is this really medical treatment? It's like a little helmet. It looks like a little space helmet that they placed, you know, around his neck, and, and he just has this little bubble, right? And so at first you're thinking, oh, that's kind of adorable, but, but for, I don't even know how many hours it was. It was one hour, two hours, three hours. As a dad, all I wanted was to hold my son, but what I had to do was look through a window while he laid by himself, new in the world, under a bubble, and struggled to breathe. And I, I do not know if I have endured any physical pain worse than that. Now, please be. Careful here. It is not as though this is some sort of cosmic child abuse that God the Son is this helpless baby who God the Father is punishing. No, Jesus chose the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, Hebrews says. But, but I, I say that to illustrate the pain of the distance between Father and Son in this moment. As wrath falls again and again on Jesus. And then he breathes his Last. What we find here, I want to introduce a term to you that I think can be helpful in struggling to understand what is going on on the cross. Uh, theologians have often spoken of, uh, use the phrase penal substitutionary atonement. What, what that means is penal, meaning a penalty is paid by Jesus, not his penalty, but our penalty. Substitutionary, meaning in our place as a substitute and atonement, mean, the, the word atonement meaning atonement, meaning rest, restorative. So the penalty fell on Jesus as our substitute to bring us back to God. As the apostle Peter would write, re, later write, he was given the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. This, this moment, the pinnacle of the gospel of Mark, redefines everything redefines the Bible, redefines reality, redefines eternity for all of God's people. So now then, we come to the other side of the cross, the power of the cross. On this side, we see this. In verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And after this, we, we, we see the account of the woman who continued to follow Jesus. We see the angel. We see everyone speaking of Jesus after this moment of his death sees Jesus very differently than anyone on the other side of the cross. They see three things. First, they see Jesus is the king. A centurion is not Jew- Jewish. He does not know all the scriptures. He maybe knows Jesus as a healer, as a teacher, as, as an exorcist, as a popular figure. But in this moment, as he watches Jesus breathe his last, he sees truly, he sees the son of God. He may not even understand fully what that means in his heart, but he knows something. He knows that the God who created him is hanging there. He knows that he is truly what the sign above him says, the king of the Jews. And, and that sign, the truest sign ever made, maybe could only be modified to say the king of creation, the cre- king of all To understand Jesus, you must understand him as the king, as the son of God. You must understand that what takes place on the cross is not forced onto Jesus, that it is chosen by Jesus. You must see his kingly power, not in preventing the cross, but in pursuing the cross. You behold his power in that the one who spoke and raised the trees across the face of the earth hung and died on one holding himself there. That the one who raised the mountains with deposits of ore that would be mined and turned into iron, that would be turned into nails, that would be driven through his hands, he held himself there on the cross. Those nails did not. The tree did not. Therefore, to see Jesus means to see him as king and to hail him as king in all of life. It means your work is redefined. Your marriage is redefined. Your parenting is redefined. Your sexuality is redefined. Your money management is redefined by the reality of Jesus as triumphant king. Second, you see something. You see Jesus destroys. On the cross, he absolutely destroys something. You you see, the the picture in in the Gospel of Mark is we're focused in in a tight shot on Jesus expiring on the cross, and then all of a sudden there's a verse that you're in the temple. And in the temple, you watch this thick, you know, foot-thick curtain be torn down the middle, and then it jumps back to the cross. Why does Mark include this? Remember the connection between, they were, they were mocking him, saying, well, you can't rebuild the temple in three, you can't destroy and rebuild the temple. Well, Jesus was speaking of the temple of his own body, right? Because the temple is the place where God dwells with his people. And so when Jesus is born, there is a new temple on the face of the earth, and it is him. He is God dwelling with his people. And when his body is destroyed, something happens. The curtain is torn in two, right? The the curtain is what separated sinful humanity from a holy God. You can't access a holy God without justice and wrath, but in Christ, when he paid the penalty for our sin, it means that he brings us to God. What that means is that, that where once only one man, after days of purification rites, could enter into the holiest of holies, the presence of God, and everyone else on the outside. Jesus, in a moment, by what he does, tears the curtain down so that all his people come in. Jesus destroys the barrier between God and and his people through his death. He proclaims in John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But oh, do his people come to the Father through him. It means this that to come to Jesus, to understand Jesus means that you come to the Father. You come to be reconciled to God. You, you, your, your future with him is secure. It's bound up in God himself. Third, Jesus rebuilds. Not only does Jesus destroy this barrier, he builds something new. Peter will say in 1 Peter 2 that all of God's people are being built together like living stones into a new temple that is Jesus. I mean, Jesus as the cornerstone begins a new building project, which then, because remember our reconciliation, includes the people of God. So Jesus will, next week, well, two weeks from now, we will see him rise from the dead and all his people rise to new life with him. And when he rises, he gets to work, to the work of building his people together into a place where God will dwell with, huma- with his people forever again. What Jesus is doing is he's taking us back to the garden. For humanity walked with God. No barrier, no separation. This beautiful temple begun now through the church will one day find its completion in heaven. Therefore, to see Jesus means to join with him in this rebuilding of humanity as the temple of God. To, To join with him in the church, meaning you cannot separate Jesus' work here from the church you cannot love Jesus and not his body you cannot come to Jesus and not be part of what he is doing in rebuilding the temple with living stones fourth and last Jesus saves oh, they said that he saved others because he couldn't save himself almost right so close Maybe a D. Because the truth is that he couldn't save himself so that he could save others. He refused to save himself so that he would save others. And here is the the beautiful truth held out in this passage. The salvation is held out to all. The centurion as the first person on the other side of the cross to see and acknowledge Jesus as king is a foretaste of things to come. This centurion, this pagan, this guy who grew up worshiping false gods not raised in a Jewish home may well be the first believer on the other side of the cross. Meaning that the way you come to Jesus, the way you come to God is not by being born in a select family, not by keeping a select group of rules, but rather by hailing him as king and becoming one of his people. And that offer then is extended to anyone. All of those, the chief priests, the scribes, wagging their heads and saying he, they had everything. They had the, the ethnic superiority, if you could say it that way, the, the, the religious superiority. All of that stuff. Nope, they missed it. This guy who has none of that sees and believes. This is what Jesus has done. Jesus extends his salvation to all who will follow and believe. All right, very quickly, three points of application then. As we see this mountaintop, you see the cross, you see the dividing line. What does that mean for us? First question is this. Is the cross at the center of your life? Look, in, in a church of our size, there will be, I'm just saying this This is reality, there will be people sitting in church that, that think, okay, well, I'm close, I, I'm clo- I feel close to other people, but in reality, you're on the other side of the continental divide. And it seems like, well, but I'm sitting in the same seats and I'm doing the same stuff. But the reality is, who Jesus is and what he's done has not reshaped your life. R- Romans 10 says, you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him for the de- from the dead. And you haven't done that. You've been around people that have done that. You've not done that. Let, let me give an illustration, if I could try to do this briefly, um, uh, that I heard of a, of a pastor who explained it this way. He had a seeker come to him, and, and the guy was struggling to, be, to understand, is he saved or not? What, what do I need to do? And so the guy drew three crosses, okay? And over the, on, on, on the, the two crosses on the side, he wrote the word in, And the the middle cross, Jesus' cross, he wrote not in. He's speaking of sin. He said, which of these guys has sin in them? And he says, well, that one. Not the one in the middle and that one. Not Jesus, but the two, you know, robbers. Okay. And that's true. No sin in Jesus inherently. Sin in these two guys inherently. And then he wrote an arrow from the third cross to Jesus. And wrote above it. The words on. The first cross, he wrote the word on. And he says, which of them have their sin on them? Speaking of the third, the third cross is the thief who believed later. He was mocking Jesus and later believed. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he says, okay, which which of these men has their sin still on them? And he says, the first one, but not the third. And the pastor leaned in and said, which are you? have you believed in christ you cannot deny that you have sin in you but in a legal sense you have two choices the sin can remain on you or it can be placed on him no sin in him but it is on him today friend right now you can confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, Christ, that God raised him from the dead and say, my, Lord, may my sin be on him. I see that I'm a sinner. I see that he's the only way. You can do it today. And if you are a Christian, let me just say that, 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 that this should, Christian life should feel like progressively running down one side of the continental divide until you arrive at the shores of heaven. Every year, every week, every month, the cross of Jesus Christ means that you, in a sense, fall in a particular direction. It means that... that, I wish we had time to do this. It it means that every area of life has been reshaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the cross of Jesus Christ. For example, your your sexuality, which is such a big deal in our culture. 1 Corinthians 6.11 talks about how uh, your body is not your own. You were bought with a price, meaning Christ, so glorify God with your body. What does that mean? You don't get to tell your body what to do. Jesus does, right? And, And marriage, People have all kinds of ideas of marriage. We gotta do this. Okay, Ephesians 5 redefines marriage this way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Meaning, the way you treat your wife is no longer the way she treats you. Oh, well, she treats me like this. Doesn't matter. The cross redefines your marriage. Reconciliation. I don't like that person. They haven't said they're sorry, blah, blah, blah. First, uh, Ephesians 4.32 says to be kind to one another, forgiving one another as God forgave you. Meaning every area of life, you just keep going, every single area of life gets redefined by the cross of Jesus Christ. Second is the cross at the center of our church's life and faith. This, this is something on my heart here. D.A. Carson, a scholar, points out a particular phenomenon about Christian movements, okay? The particular phenomenon is this, that in, it, there will be a movement of people who love and celebrate and cling to the gospel of Jesus, the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen! First, first generation believes it, receives it. The second generation assumes it. Like, well, we know We know the cross, blah, blah, blah. Let's move on to other things. Let's start talking about other stuff. You know, Ephesians 5, that can be good for marriage, but we got to get into this tip and this personality thing, and we got to get, that's where we're going to spend all of our time. And then the result is that the third generation loses it. And he can point to movements throughout history. First generation loves and receives it. Second generation assumes it. third generation loses it. That is where our church is at. The first generation that founded this church in the 70s and 80s loved the gospel of Jesus Christ by God's grace. I grew up in this church and there was not, it didn't seem a Sunday went by without somebody singing and preaching about the cross of Jesus Christ. Love it. The danger is this. Second generation, we can assume it. We can move on to other stuff. For the sake of our kids and our grandkids, may we not. May we jump back to the first generation and love and receive it all the more. First message I ever preached in this pulpit, Tom Wilkins assigned me. He probably should not have. I was too young to preach, which is a retroactive critique I have for Tom. But... (laughs) Tom was like, yeah, in retrospect, that's probably true. Uh, He assigned me the text. You know the text he assigned me? 1 Corinthians 2. For I decided to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. And at the time, I thought, okay, this is kind of whatever. I'll just preach whatever Tom gives me. And in retrospect, I now know what Tom was doing. He was not assuming it. Parents, we cannot assume our kids get this. We cannot. For the sake of their souls, we cannot assume they understand that they're sinners and understand that Christ is a great Savior. <laughs> lots of good parenting stuff floating around, lots of good parenting stuff to take in and, and to benefit from. Let's not lose this. Jesus Christ and him crucified. If that's not the thing that we keep telling our kids until they are dead tired of it, I think we failed. In our community groups, as we gather, we must not assume that reality when we gather around the Bible. There shouldn't be a community group meeting that goes by where we just talk about other stuff without understanding some connection to the cross of Jesus Christ and to that topic. Our worship leaders, if you're leading worship in a small group, If you uh, come to lead worship on this stage, may a Sunday not go by where we do not sing about the cross of Jesus Christ. I, I went to a church service once where they sang so many good songs about God's goodness and love and blah, 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 faithfulness. Nothing about the cross. Nothing about how to come to Christ. And if you come to preach the gospel of Jesus, and I believe some in this room will, may you never assume your reader's or your hearers get it. All right, let me say this. We, we changed our name 13 or 14 years ago. We, we chose a name that better reflected our message to the world around us. We wanted to choose a name rather that, we, that would better reflect our name to the world around us. We were called, before uh, this name, we were called Vista New Life, which is great. New Life is good. I'm not sure what the Vista was. It was a Vista, I don't know, yeah, it just sounds, you gotta have something to make it pop, I guess, I don't know. So we we asked for suggestions on our names. Uh, so people submitted lots of different suggestions, uh, which was dangerous. We got some very passionate people who really liked their name. Um, and we finally got down to the final names. And I remember being, I was like an intern, I think, at this time, and we were in the discussion of like, okay, what about this name, that name, and and, and there was a name that we that the, the, the elders really liked, but but there was almost a concern, like, well, it just seems too simple. <laughs> seems too ordinary. Is it too ordinary? Do we need a name that pops? Name that's like got some pizzazz, like a Greek word that's obscure or like a a, a Hebrew thing, you know, I don't know. Didn't seem exciting, didn't have a wow factor. But our elders, your elders, led us to choose it. And it is our name now. Cross of grace. Church, this I've talked to people and they're like, what's the name of your church again? It's not memorable. Is <laughs> it cross of, of hope or what what's the name? Grace, Grace Christian Cross. People are, you know, they struggle with it. It's not, it doesn't pop. It doesn't doesn't pop. We don't care if it pops. Because 1 Corinthians 22 says this, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. May we live our name, church. Amen. When you stand, let's sing. Father, we're grateful for the cross of Jesus Christ. Grateful that it holds out grace to centurions and Gentiles and lawbreakers and thieves and the worst among us. Lord, may we as a church never move on from the reality, from the mountaintop of the cross of Jesus Christ.